Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On December 10th, Donald Trump upended over 30 years of U.S. diplomacy with a tweet in which he declared American support for Morocco's claims of sovereignty over Western Sahara. This was a big deal in diplomatic circles and a major disruption of politics in the Middle East and North Africa. Since the 1970s, Morocco and a local group called the Polisario Front have fought for control over Western Sahara. In the early 1990s, the United States brokered a ceasefire agreement which called for the people of Western Sahara, who are predominantly Sahrawis, to vote in a referendum to determine their status as an independent country. A UN peacekeeping mission was deployed to the region to help maintain the ceasefire and prepare for the vote. Despite years of diplomacy, that referendum has never taken place, for reasons we discuss in this episode. Now, the United States has abandoned its previous support for the self-determination of the Sahrawi people and simply affirmed that Western Sahara is part of Morocco. In exchange, Morocco has begun to establish formal diplomatic ties with Israel. On the line with me to help make sense of the significance of this move by the outgoing U.S. administration is Intasar Fakir. She is a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and editor of SADA, a publication that focuses on political, economic, and social developments in the Middle East. We spend a good deal of time in this episode discussing the recent history of the Western Sahara conflict from the 1970s until today. We then discuss the implications of America's sudden reversal of its long-held diplomatic position. The conflict in Western Sahara is not something that has gotten great deal of attention in recent years in foreign policy circles, at least here in the United States. And one reason that Intasar Fakir suggests for that is that it has been, as she says, a, quote, peaceful conflict. However, just weeks before the Trump tweet, the conflict seriously escalated. For the first time since 1991, the ceasefire was formally violated and fighting erupted along the Mauritania border. Needless to say, layering this U.S. declaration of support of Morocco on top of an already volatile situation is making for some very tense times in the region. So before we start, I have one announcement. I'm doing an end-of-the-year giveaway in which, in exchange for sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues, I will give you a few months of complimentary access to my daily global news clips service, and if you're based in the U.S., I'll mail you a sticker. 
Details and a link to this referral program are available in the show notes of this episode. Do check it out if you're a regular listener. It's a great way to share your love of the show and earn some rewards in the process. And this will be going on for just about a month, so be sure to share the show soon. And as always, if you have questions about anything, please just send me an email. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right, now here is my conversation with Intasar Fakir of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. But the basic narrative of how the conflict arose, and then, of course, what an equitable solution um, for all parties looks like are all very deeply contested, you know, within the negotiation process, and of course, even just in how the conflict itself is debated. Um, for Morocco, the Western Sahara issue has been a question of regaining and securing territorial integrity. For the Polisario, it's a question of incomplete decolonization. And for Algeria, it's about supporting an independence movement. And it's also at the same time about keeping Moroccan regional influence in check. Mm. One way that I like to think about the history of the, of the conflict is I, I kind of like to divide it a little bit into sort of three different stages. Um, and feel free to interrupt me if at any point I'm going too fast or anything. No, this the is first good. Stage, okay. The first you, stage. You, you is, have me gripped. Okay, good. <laughs> so the first stage is sort of, you know, before um, 1975, this is kind of a period where when uh, claims were being staked and, you know, fault lines were, were essentially forming. This is, you know, around the debate about the future of colonization um, in North Africa, I think in Africa in general, the debate about the future of the territory um, was growing, you know, Morocco's claims to it were growing. At the same time, the Sahrawi nationalist sentiment was growing, and Sahrawi nationalist movement was kind of um, organizing. And incidentally, at the start, they were organizing as part of the broader push that also includes Morocco's own push for an end to uh, Spanish colonialism. And, you know, here you kind of have historians often agree that Morocco made a mistake by, by not quoting this group early on. Mm. Uh, Morocco, uh, in addition to Morocco, Mauritania also had claims on the territories. And Algeria, which had gained independence um, from France in 1962, was mostly focused on Morocco's claims to its own border area, which would be, um, you know, within a year, the subject of war between Morocco and Algeria, the Sand War, if you've heard of that. So you kind of have this sort of, you know, colonial, post-colonial struggle for borders, and everyone sort of trying to figure out what kind of gains they can get from this process. So 
Spain announces that it's going to hold a, a referendum, which is what the international community had favored at that point. I'm talking here about the, you know, um, sort of 70, 73, 74, um, 75. Hassan II, then King of Morocco, was he was worried that he was running out of time and had kind of decided to move ahead and sort of force a resolution that would be in Morocco's favor. And so this is when the Green March of 1975 that you hear about happened. So what is that? That is the, the yeah. annexation of Western Sahara. Exactly. And exactly. In, so instead of having that referendum to determine the status of Western Sahara, Morocco invaded. Exactly. So domestically, Hassan II, it's important also to understand a little bit what was pushing him, right? Domestically, Hassan II was coming under increasing pressure from opposition groups. He was facing dissatisfaction about his, you know, very heavy-handed authoritarian rule, uh, threats from nationalist parties, and even from within the military, which had tried to depose him in the early 70s twice. So, you know, he asserted that most Moroccans really genuinely view as their historical claims to the Western Sahara, and he pushes the Green March. It's something like 130 Moroccans march down to the Western Sahara to claim control of the territory. And so it effectively became annexed at this point. Became annexed at this point, exactly. So Morocco tries to annex the territory here. And so this is kind of, in my mind, a little bit sort of the end of that that first kind of phase. The second phase, which is, you know, from when Morocco annexes the territory, 1975 to 1991, this is an area of, this is a sort of a period of active control, uh, active uh, active control and active uh, armed conflict between Morocco and Polisario. So in response to Morocco's mobilization in 75, Spain essentially negotiates an agreement granting administrative control to both Morocco and Mauritania to run the territory, and then they leave. The Polisario, which had been formed in the early 70s, I think 72 or 73, they uh, very quickly announced the Sahrawi Arab Republic in 1976, and that was supported by Algeria. So the Polisario at this point, starts fighting with Morocco and with Mauritania, right? They want them all to kind of, you know, they're all essentially trying to figure out who can, you know, who can push the other out of the area first and who can get control of that area. And it's fundamentally um, a nationalist movement, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just exactly. want, they want control, self-determination, their homeland exactly. to be of their people. To be of their people, to be, where their people can return and kind of, you know, have access to, to this place that had been colonized by Spain and now suddenly it's being colonized by Morocco. This is how they view the issue. So, you know, the Polisario is fighting with Mauritania, it's fighting with Morocco. Um, Eventually, you know, Mauritania really starts to kind of struggle with the toll. I mean, everybody was paying the toll of this this active conflict. And, um, you know, by, I want to say by the end of 79, Mauritania withdraws from the conflict and says, you know, Morocco and the Polisario, I, I no longer, you know, I, I, I relinquish my claims to the territory. You two essentially fight it out between yourself. So now it becomes a conflict between Morocco and between the Polisario. And, you know, Morocco at the same time is, you know, able to kind of um, 
turn the military situation to its to its uh, advantage by building the berm, and it sort of tilts the balance a little bit in favor of Morocco, and it allows it to gradually consolidate its de facto control. And, of the area. and we should say the berm that you reference is this giant, probably like the world's longest wall. It's exactly. uh, it, it's this um, basically like a, a earthen wall that uh, has been constructed by Morocco to separate the line of control. Yes, mm-hmm. it's constructed by Morocco. It's reinforced by barbed wire and mines. And it really mm-hmm. it really tipped the armed conflict in favor of Morocco. Mm-hmm. Morocco was, however, facing a different kind of pressure where the Sahrawi Arab Republic was gaining diplomatic recognition across Africa. And it was, um, you know, officially made a member of the African Union in 1981. Morocco subsequently leaves the organization in 84 in protest of Southern, of the, I call it Southern, the uh, African Arab, um, oh, sorry, the Sahrawi Arab Republic uh, taking its seat and, mm-hmm. you know, um, becoming uh, sort of recognized on such a, a large scale within the African continent. So. You know, this is sort of, you know, this is kind of where where the um, the situation militarily starts to change. And then, you know, negotiations move into move sort of more for, firmly into the UN. And by 1991, um, you have, you know, you have the. Um, uh, the, essentially the beginning of the process of the uh, ceasefire between Morocco and the Polisario, you know, Minerso is formed mm-hmm. and then you kind of have um, both parties abiding by a ceasefire and trying to work on this main question of a referendum, mm-hmm. which is the vote that would determine the future of the Western Sahara. And and just to, to be clear, Minerso is the UN peacekeeping force in the region that was agreed to as part of this 1991 agreement, uh, which had was really brought to life by James Baker, right? I mean, he, exactly. the, the, the U.S. Uh, was the key player in the diplomatic effort to uh, end that hot conflict. Uh, mm-hmm. And install that UN peacekeeping mission uh, while awaiting and preparing for this this referendum, right? Exactly, exactly. The referendum, um, basically, Morocco was coming to terms with organizing a referendum in 1991, and this is uh, referred to as the settlement plan, which would include a ceasefire and then both parties essentially agreeing on who gets to vote in such a referendum. Um, the, the, the question of the referendum, and I, I kind of, you know, this is sort of, to me, this is kind of the third part of the conflict, which brings us to today. Um, the question of the, of the referendum would sort of become the sticking, the sticking point for negotiation process, um, throughout the nineties and and the early 2000s. the the main question about the referendum, you know, was was to to sort of try to get Morocco and the Polisario to agree on who gets to be identified as a voter, to put together these voter lists on who gets to vote in the referendum. And should that voter identification be done on the pay, on the basis of territorial links, 
or on the basis of ethnic links? Should it be people who have lived in this area for a long time, or should it be Sahrawis who were moved from, you know, one 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 part of the, you know, one part of Morocco or Mauritania or even, you know, southern Algeria and so on? Which one of those get to vote? And so there is, you know, long back and forths about the voter list. And gradually it starts to become clear that Morocco was backing out of the referendum, one of the, essentially one of the main tenets of the resolution. This is what the mandate of Minerso is, in addition to mm. monitoring the ceasefire. Yeah, like the R in Minerso stands for exactly. referendum, referendum that they're supposed exactly. to help plan uh, that was agreed to in 1991. That still has not taken place. It has not taken place. Mm. And by, you know, by the late 90s, it was becoming clear that Morocco was essentially losing confidence in its ability to gain a vote. Mm -hmm. It was worried that Sahrawis would vote for independence, no matter how much Morocco had tried to shape the outcome of the referendum in their favor, you know, by encouraging migration southward to skew the numbers in their favor. And of course, by by uh, even investing heavily on, mm -hmm. in, in the area and trying to curry favor with um, certain groups to guarantee the vote. Is, is it fair to say that like everyone knows that this referendum isn't really going to happen or there's no momentum towards a referendum, yet there also hasn't been a hot war uh, for a, a long time? Was generally, you know, the, the status quo up until just a few weeks ago uh, yeah. when, when um, conflict resumed? And what was the uh, context and circumstances in which this kind of long status quo was broken? Yeah. So um, the, I mean, I, I tend to actually, I guess maybe I would push a little bit on, on that framing because I tend to think of, even though the fighting resurfaced, I don't think that really broke the status quo. I think potentially what we might look at as something that is breaking the status quo is the White House announcement mm -hmm. from December 10th. But to go back to the question of, uh, you know, the resumption of active um, fighting between Morocco and the Polisario, this was about a basically um, an outpost, a, a land crossing between you know, the Western Sahara, the area that's under Moroccan control and Mauritania. This is called the Gargarat Crossing, uh, the Gargarat Road and the Gargarat Crossing Fort. And, you know, m both Morocco and the Polisario are present in that area. There's sort of a thin buffer zone there. Um, and the Moroccan army controls parts of the road, uh, but the road is very important for Morocco and the Polisario as it's, you know, the main entry point into um, Mauritania. So I think towards the end of October, uh, Morocco had been reporting that there were Polisario elements there that were blocking the crossing. They were blocking uh, Moroccan trucks from accessing Mauritania and sort of uh, trucks uh, going from Mauritania towards Morocco. And so they had kind of been warning a little bit. They'd been saying, okay, there, there are these um, elements, Polisario elements that are blocking the road and we kind of need the situation to end. And the Polisario is saying, these are not, you know, these are just uh, peaceful protesters that are out there protesting. So Morocco decides to uh, clear the road. And by that, uh, they mean, you know, essentially fire on people to disperse um, 
the gathering and to reopen the road again. And in response, the uh, Polisario announces that um, the, the ceasefire has been broken and the conflict, the armed conflict has resumed. Is it fair to say that this is the first time that they've made such an announcement since 1991? Of actually breaking the ceasefire in kind of an official way, yes. Mm-hmm. There so had been tension between the two about this particular crossing. I think the last sort of episode was in 2017 where things became heated. But then the situation sort of de-escalated eventually. So you are on this kind of remarkable path to escalation, remarkable for the fact that, you know, like you said, it was an right. official um, breaking off of the ceasefire that had been officially intact since 1991. Uh, so so exactly. that was the situation uh, when on December 10th, you had this announcement yes. from the White House. Um, right. What did the <clears throat> White House say and how was the reaction or what was the reaction on the ground to best of your knowledge? Yeah. yeah so a couple of, uh, just a couple of things that I want to add before that is that through the resumption of active um, conflict, basically Morocco was able to make one very key gain in that they now control that border crossing into mm. Mauritania. And there was, there wasn't a lot of pushback on that. You know, suddenly Morocco announces that they were able to extend the Burham all the way to the uh, Mauritanian border, and then they're now in full control of the crossing. And there is very little attention that's being paid to this key um, key development. So then, you know, uh, fast forward to December 10th, the White House, uh, the Trump administration announces that it is recognizing Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara territory in exchange for Morocco normalizing ties with Israel. This is the big announcement. The news sort of played out a little bit more slowly in Morocco than it did here. Um, and I think it was interesting to sort of see, for me at least, to see the, um, the differences in how um, the announcement was being presented. In Morocco, it was sort of the, you know, the U.S. recognition element of it was very much emphasized as a big win, a big democr- uh, diplomatic win for the monarchy, which it is. And the normalization element of it was played down a little bit because of the risks that that has of generating popular um, anger. In Western Sahara itself? Has this affected any of the hostilities? I mean, is there still ongoing fighting to the to this day, to your knowledge? Yes. Um, yes. So the Polisario, I think as of yesterday or the day before, had been reporting uh, clashes along the berm. Mm-hmm. So um, Morocco uh, has very, very tight control over the media's access to the area. And they have been very quiet about the state of this conflict. You know, we, we refer to it kind of as a low-level um, uh, active, sort of, you know, active conflict. But they have been very, very quiet. And the police area announces that they, they hit, they've hit certain uh, positions. Morocco, neither, the, neither Morocco nor the police area have actually reported any um, casualties or damages 
Um, so, you know, there, the situation you hear um, from the Polisario a lot more about the attacks than you hear from Morocco. And I think Morocco has um, has incentive to sort of keep this as to keep this kind of as as a as a low level non threatening sort of issue right now, while this whole sort of recognition is playing out, because that would draw a lot more attention to the issue and potentially greater international scrutiny if you know there is uh, a lot more attention about what's going on military militarily in the area. Has the unilateral recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara by the United States had any broader diplomatic impact at this point? I mean, you know, I follow issues at the United Nations very closely. And, you know, it it seems to me no other permanent five member or no other member of the Security Council uh, went along with this declaration. Moreover, you know, just I think it was in October, the United States Mm -hmm. already renewed the mandate of that peacekeeping mission for another year. Um, And Mm -hmm. so if it really wanted to um, to to force the issue, it would have vetoed, I would think, the mandate of Minerso, uh, the peacekeeping mission, but it, you know, it, it, it didn't. Um, and now you have, of course, the Trump administration is leaving office in just a few weeks. So how lasting an impact is this yeah. move by the United States to your, to your mind? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it has significant impact. Like you rightly pointed out, it doesn't, this isn't the resolution of the issue. Um, you know, Europe is still has still supports the UN, um, the UN led uh, process. The UN's position has not changed. But what this does, I think, is it gives Morocco that much more sort of room to to really sidestep, um, you know, some of the bigger issues of you know, um, what are the terms of its control of the area? What is the future of the refugee population? It, it really gives them a way to kind of, you know, to, to it, it gives them almost backing to not engage on the issue at the UN and to kind of, you know, go along with their own control of the territory, their own use of its resources without really having to kind of figure out a bigger answer to the issue. Uh, And also, you know, what's to say that, you know, once the Biden administration takes over that they, you know, just reverse this, this policy. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, certainly it's possible. I think it would be very, very tricky um, for the Biden administration to do it. This is part of the problems with this announcement is that it kind of locks the U S in this position because you know, Morocco and the U.S. have very strong ties. Um, you know, the U.S. has always, and, and to some extent also Europe, you know, they've always managed to find this kind of balance where they're supportive of the monarchy. There are very strong security and economic ties between the two, but they have never really um, acknowledged Morocco's um, uh, sovereignty over the Western Sahara conflict. They've almost kind of been able to keep the two a little bit separate. And I think to to some extent separate um, to and I think the, you know, for the future administration, for them to essentially say to Morocco, no, 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 we're going to we're going to uh, reverse our position here 
would really create a significant headache um, at a time that maybe they wouldn't want to have such a headache. Um, there's a lot of issues on this administration's plate, um, domestic and foreign, and to kind of have an added conflict with Morocco um, that might hamper these you know, important security cooperation. It's, it's pretty significant for North African stability. It's significant for the Sahel. I think that could create um, just a headache for this administration that may be um, kind of you know, gratuitous. Huh. So, so that tweet was like a fait accompli in a way for the Biden administration. I think so. I mean, how what I, it's hard for me to imagine how they could backtrack with this without creating a bigger problem than just sort of going along with it. And of course, that leaves the uh, people of Western Sahara, you know, just just in a far worse position exactly. now than they were, uh, you exactly. know, pre pre tweet. So what's the next exactly. iteration uh, of this conflict then? I mean, can we expect yeah. more violence on the ground as a result? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big question for the next, you know, the next few weeks is what what can the Polisario do here to survive? You know, what is it? What are, what's the range of option before it? And, you know, reigniting the conflict was one option to try to bring um, a little more sort of diplomatic and, and kind of international attention to it. But then how much more, uh, how much more potential is there for escalation? Like we talked about, Morocco has kind of the, the upper military hand because of the berm. Moroccan military is extremely well trained and, and well supplied. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to imagine what, how much more the Polisario can escalate the conflict. Not to mention, of course, you know, the Algeria element of this, of this equation here, you know, Algeria has always supported the Polisario. Um, you know, Algerian military is facing a lot of pressure domestically. Uh, the Algerian uh, population has essentially been uh, for, for more than a year now um, calling for a complete overhaul of the political system. You know, they want the, the military to play a smaller role politically. And then, of course, you have um, economically Algeria is struggling because of the loss of income from oil prices, from uh, lower oil prices. So the question I think for the next um, for the next you know for weeks and months to come is uh, how much support is Algeria? What kind of support is Algeria going to provide to the military? How is Algeria going to play? Or sorry, how is Algeria going to play its hand vis-a-vis -vis the Polisario? Um, what kind of support are they willing to uh, provide to the Polisario? And then, you know, what more broadly, what the, what can the Polisario do to sort of survive this diplomatic mm -hmm. setback? Um, you know, lastly, one thing I've always kind of been curious about in this conflict is, you know, why it has generally received very little high level attention since the early 1990s. I mean, you know, it, it combines a lot of issues that are you know, critical and, and driving world affairs today. I mean, it, you know, it is a uh, humanitarian crisis. It is in a part of the world that's of increasing strategic relevance. Uh, mm -hmm. It pits questions of colonization and decolonization, 
yet it's not like a top tier issue that you yeah. see discussed and you know pontificated about in foreign policy circles, at least in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Like, I mean, why do you think that is? I mean, I think in part because it was sort of, you know, it was kind of a peaceful conflict and, mm. you know, um, there the the situation the, the status quo more importantly i think had been sort of working for all partners involved it had been working for morocco it had been working for algeria it had even arguably been working for the polisario of course it doesn't work for the you know thousands of sahrawis who live in refugee camps and await a, a solution but i think those groups unfortunately are maybe really only represented by a small and vocal activist community in Europe and a little bit here in the US that advocates on their behalf, but you know they're not really able to gain um, a lot of attention. So I think all of these elements essentially contributed to making this somewhat of a, yes, it's a problem, but maybe it's a problem that we don't have to worry about resolving because resolving it could be worse than the actual problem mm. itself or could be more difficult than the actual problem itself. So, um, you know, I think um, I think that's that's kind of why this issue had gotten on without really being resolved. Um, so that's interesting. It's almost like the peace process was itself uh, the, a sol- a the solution, somewhat. as opposed exactly. to the the that yeah. that's uh, that's an interesting. There's like, I think a whole sidebar you can have on Baker, James Baker's legacy to that end. But that's really interesting. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much to Intasar Fakir. That was very helpful and informative. And I'll be certainly, you know, monitoring these uh, events in the Western Sahara as they evolve in the coming year and as the new administration in the United States takes office. So thank you for listening. And also, again, please do check out that referral program I referenced at the start of the episode. Simply click on the link in the show notes, and it will take you to a page where you can share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and in the process earn some free months of my daily global news clips service, Dawn's Digest, and also I'll mail you a sticker. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.